America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day that we can call, well, not only Pearl Harbor Day, though it is that, but it is a great day because it is Tired of Winning Wednesday. What do I mean? Just uh, remember these golden and imperishable words. Listen. We're going to win so much, you may even get tired of winning. And you'll say, please, please, it's too much winning. We can't take it anymore. Is that what the American people said yesterday in Georgia, President Trump? They uh, Too much winning, the American people can't take it anymore. Well, they couldn't take it anymore yesterday for poor Herschel Walker, who gave a noble concession speech. He sort of illustrated the line from Macbeth where it says nothing in his life became him like the leaving it. Nothing in his campaign became him like the losing it. Uh, and yes, you can apply Shakespeare to that Shakespearean hero. Herschel Walker and too bad for him. Uh, Jim Garrity writes in the National Review on the menu today unsurprisingly Democrat Raphael Warnock was re-elected to the Senate in Georgia last night as the flaws and the baggage of Republican nominee Herschel Walker proved too much for him to overcome without control of the upper chamber hanging in the balance. Uh, yesterday Walker was roughly 200,000 fewer votes than he did in November. In other words, what's incredible is that after all that campaigning, he had more votes uh, in November than he did last night. And uh, the one thing about uh, that is very clear about Raphael Warnock is that he was involved in a runoff uh, two years ago. He did better than that, came uh, closer to winning an outright majority in the general election and then built on that. His campaign seemed to work. Herschel Walker's campaign, not so much. Uh, this is what um, uh, the Senate candidate, Herschel Walker, sounded like in conceding the election. And, and let me just remind people, you're so distracted, we're so distracted by people like Carrie Lake in Arizona and by President Trump, of course, who refused to concede, people like Stacey Abrams, who not in this race, this race she conceded, the one that took place in November, but um, four years ago, she also didn't concede. Uh, and it's so much better for a politician and his reputation in the country for someone to talk like this. Clip three. One of the things I want to tell all of you is you never stop dreaming. I don't want any of you to stop dreaming. I don't want any of you to stop believing in America. I want you to believe in America and continue to believe in the Constitution and believe in our elected officials most of all. Continue to pray for them because all the prayers you've given me, I felt those prayers. I want to thank all my team as well, Team Herschel, because they put up with a lot. I want to thank Team Herschel. Thank all my donors as well because you guys, without you, I couldn't have done what I've done. So I want to thank all of you as well because there's no excuses in life. And I'm not going to make any excuses now because we put up one heck of a fight. And I said, that's what, that's what we got to do. Because this is much bigger. This is much bigger than Herschel Walker. What this indicates is that something that I was getting ready to, to say before I listened to Herschel Walker's concession speech was the idea that he probably didn't have much of a political future. It's hard to imagine him running for Congress. 
or running for governor or running for senator. He's not qualified to be attorney general. He's not an attorney. But the point is that the concession speech was so classy and so appropriate. Uh, here's what Jim Garrity says at National Review. He says that Walker conceded. And that makes Carrie Lake stand out even more. With almost all of Arizona ignoring Lake's insistence in her gubernatorial election that her gubernatorial election loss was illegitimate, it now seems fair to ask whether election denialism is really all that consequential. And with that, the 2022 midterm election cycle is now completely over. Georgia's Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock was reelected last night, winning his second runoff in less than two years by besting Herschel Walker, a scandal-ridden football star whom former President Trump had called unstoppable. With 100% of precincts reported, Warnock finished with 51.28% and Walker finished with 48.72%. What this indicates is that uh, Georgia is a swing state. Uh, and and it really is. Why is it a swing state, not a democratic state? Because in the race for governor and the race for secretary of state, the Republicans who stood up to Trump, uh, Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger, won in landslides. And uh, Republican Cong candidates for Congress and for other offices did very well in this balloting. It was a problem for people who were associated in any way with the election denial myth. By the way, there's news about that myth and related conspiracy myths over in Germany, which is shocking. There is big news about Vladimir Zelensky. We talked yesterday on the air with Mark Oppenheimer about the likelihood that Zelensky would be selected as Time Magazine's Person of the Year. Uh, well, he he made it. He he he's it. He is named Time Magazine's Person of the Year, and it's well deserved. And the entire civilized world is celebrating, except for people. And there are those people in the anti-Semitic community who uh, would insist that he didn't deserve it. And they would remind people that Hitler at one point was also Time Magazine Person of the Year. There is more from Ye considering his. Uh, interview yesterday with Mr. McInnes, the head of Proud Boys. He was there with his uh, new buddy, uh, Nick Fuentes, and one of the things that was said by Ye repeatedly is that, yes, Hitler has a bad reputation, but he doesn't deserve it. And he said, why does Hitler have that bad reputation? He has a bad reputation because the Jews gave it to him. Okay, maybe people could actually look a little bit at European history, at world history, and at the estimated 20 million citizens of the Soviet Empire who were killed in that war, most of them civilians, most of them killed deliberately by the Nazis, including literally millions of Ukrainians who were killed by the Nazis. And yes, there were some Ukrainians who went over and fought on the Nazi side, and the entire history is incredibly bloody. But look at what he did in Norway. Look at what he did throughout Europe. And Hitler's bad reputation, if anyone has ever earned a bad reputation, you think it's Adolf Hitler? You think it's a conspiracy to make him look bad? Meanwhile, in Germany, 
There were raids at 130 properties by government agents, 25 arrested, apparently a major conspiracy in Germany to overthrow the government. And the only description I've read so far as they're exploring this disturbing bit of news is that this particular conspiracy is associated with QAnon. They believe that they have to overthrow the German government to overturn a conspiracy of Satan worshipping pedophiles. In other words, uh, amazing news, but very important to remember. The other news, of course, today was the guilty convictions, the convictions for President Trump's company. No, 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 it's not a conviction for President Trump himself. He is not going to jail over this. But is it significant that a, a, a candidate for president of the United States has been found guilty or his company has been found guilty with his name very much tarnished by something like conviction on uh, tax fraud and misrepresentation and dishonesty. Can you think of any other candidate for president that could possibly even imaginably have a situation where he was convicted of all 17 charges against him. And the jury was fast about it. That's what's remarkable. They didn't appear to have that much debate and yet would still be considered a viable candidate. We'll talk about part of what this means uh, coming up with John Yu, who is a distinguished professor of law at University of California at Berkeley. That and more, plus a profound and moving column about why is America like this? Like what? Leonard Pitts has a great deal to say. We'll go to that coming up on the Medved Show. Michael Medved show it is tired of winning Wednesday okay okay I won't mention it again <laughs> but there was a, a, an unfortunate uh, mishap for the GOP for Republicans who had united to a surprising extent behind the candidacy of Herschel Walker who lost in a way that preserves his political prospects for the future. And not, look, I'm not saying that Herschel Walker is coming roaring back in the next uh, time that a Senate seat is available in the state of Georgia, which is four years from now. The, the Warnock seat that he just won won't be available for another six years. But uh, could uh, Herschel Walker continue to play a role as a leader in the Republican Party? Uh, maybe. Part of his acceptance speech, non-acceptance speech, it was his concession speech, accepting his loss, in that sense it was an acceptance speech. Uh, part of his concession speech sounded like this. Listen. I got a chance to go into your homes, got a chance that you uh, invested in Herschel Walker, and I thank you, and I thank you so much. And as I said, you can't blame no one because uh, I want you to continue to believe in this country, believe in our elected official, and most of all, stay together. Don't let anyone separate you. Don't let anyone tell you that we can't, because I'm here to tell you we can. And I'm here to tell you we can. And as I said early on, this is, God is good. Look, Her Herschel Walker 
with all of the problems in his candidacy, there are a couple of things that, that ought to be looked over for Republicans. One is much closer vetting of candidates. And it is very, very important, and this happened really across the country for many people, is that when you have particularly people who have not participated in politics before, who have not run for office before, people like Mehmet Oz, uh, what you need to do is go through everything possible that they're going to throw against the candidate and then either reconsider the candidate or look at how you're going to bat that away. Now, there was so much about Herschel Walker that was already known that was problematic, particularly involving his personal life. But the fact that the charges of him pushing former girlfriends into abortions for somebody who was running as a Christian conservative and somebody who was so outspoken and actually, frankly, so moving and convincing and talking about his Christian faith, uh, that that's somebody who ought to be looked at particularly closely. And good luck and Godspeed to Herschel Walker. His opponent, uh, Raphael Warnock, the man of God, pastor, uh, and not a very particularly effective candidate. And you could see that in terms of how tight and buttoned up and uh, a non-emotional and non-relatable he was in his victory speech. A victory speech is a pretty easy time for a candidate to shine. Uh, Warnock did not. And part of what he talked about is voter suppression. Now, right after you've won an election with a, a huge percentage of the black vote in, in the state of Georgia, the overwhelming majority of black people voted for the Democrat among the two black candidates. And, uh, okay, there was huge turnout for black people, no evidence of voter suppression, but he says it's still an issue. And he put it into his uh, acceptance speech. He put it into his victory speech last night where it hardly belongs. Uh, let's play that segment where Warnock claims that voter suppression is still a big issue. Listen. There are those who would look at the outcome of this race and say that there's no voter suppression in Georgia. <laughs> Let me be clear. Just because people endured long lines that wrapped around buildings some blocks long, just because they endured the rain and the cold and all kinds of tricks in order to vote, doesn't mean that voter suppression does not exist. It simply means that you, the people, have decided that your voices will not be silenced. Well, it means that the voter suppression isn't uh, really particularly effective. He talks about all kinds of tricks, and he talks about in the context of the rain and the cold. Are those part of the tricks that uh, people uh, were, were, were suffering from? They had tricks. They made it rain and cold, and their lines stretching around the block. Look, usually... People look at lines stretching around the block and they say, isn't that terrific? The voters were really concerned about this election. They came out in, in great numbers and in, in uh, basically very impressive numbers, far more than in the double runoff election. 
of two years ago, the uh, election that got Warnock to the Senate in the first place, along with his colleague John Ossoff. He also brought up that it was uh, such a triumph for Georgia that uh, Georgia's first black U.S. senator was reelected, and as he said, uh, the Georgia's first Jewish senator, John Ossoff, was elected uh, two years ago. But the idea that uh, this represents a triumph over any attacks on uh, voter procedures in Georgia, many of them launched by the two-time nominee for governor, Stacey Abrams. Uh, Eugene Daniels was, was on uh, television commenting on this and talking about the entire history of Georgia runoffs, despite the fact that both candidates were black this time, that it was intended to make sure that black votes were suppressed. Is that being a sore winner? Uh, here is Eugene Daniels, listen. This is something that when you talk to activists, advocates, and, and strategists, organizers on the ground in Georgia, which I did earlier this year, um, they bring this up a lot, right? They talk about how um, this kind of runoff system, first of all, and, and just the historic um, way that segregation um, dismantled and took away the power of black folks in the South. And they say they've been feeling that in Georgia forever. And then they point to this as Georgia using this process that was, you know, Denmark Groover eventually said and admitted um, was intended to make sure that black people's vote was, was suppressed. Um, they point to that as something why it should they should get rid of it in the in in um, in that state. It's something that doesn't seem like uh, Georgia, uh, the leaders in Georgia, want to get rid of, but it's something that people still feel. He says, Daniels, that it's something that people feel. The idea that Georgia runoffs were set up to uh, work against black people, well, obviously that didn't work very well. And I think it's very important to take note of the fact that whatever attempts at voter suppression there were this time emphatically did not work well. I'll tell you one of the things that uh, is also not working well is despite the fact that there was obviously a big victory for Democrats at, at this point, it's, um, and despite the fact that uh, Democrats are zeroing in on a criminal reference, a uh, a Justice Department reference concerning this, uh, the uh, January 6th riots, that from the Select Committee, which is going to be going out of business fairly soon. The difficulty there uh, has to do with uh, what that verdict actually means. We'll talk about that with John Yu, Professor of Law, coming up on the Medvedev Show. On Pearl Harbor Day, uh, I'm broadcasting today still from Hawaii, from uh, Maui, actually, not where Pearl Harbor is, but we're going to be visiting Pearl Harbor a little bit later on this trip. Today is also a dramatic day for American history, not just because of the formal end, thank goodness, of the election process of 2022 but because of legal arguments that may determine who gets the final say in the election of 2024. 
Uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the show, as always, John Yu, who is a distinguished professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley, who has written a, a very important piece about a case that's being argued right now, but that most people don't know about. It's called Moore versus Harper, and it could be a decisive factor in the election of 2024. Professor Yu, how is that? Uh, Michael, it's great to be with you again. It's a really interesting case because it calls on the court to answer the question, when the Constitution says a state legislature does something, does that mean the state legislature? Or can the state involve a governor, can involve the courts, can even involve just a popular vote? Now, the reason why that's important is in the case of the Supreme Court today, the state legislature's role in drawing congressional districts is up. In this case, North Carolina's state legislature drew the districts as it is allowed to under the Constitution. But the North Carolina Supreme Court threw it out. They said the map was not fair. That's the question that's before the court. Can state courts, for example, throw out what the state legislature does? You point out quite rightly that this is important for the 2024 election and all presidential elections, because guess what? The Constitution also says state legislatures pick the presidential electors. And so when states have votes for the president, those are because the state legislatures allow us to vote for the president. And so the question is, what would happen if a state legislature said, and eh, we don't like how our people voted. We're going to vote. We're going to cast the votes for somebody else. That's up at stake in this Moore versus Harper case that the Supreme Court is hearing today. Have either of the sides uh, on the election denial issue, uh, for instance, those more than 100 members of Congress who were actually voting to overturn some of the results that had been officially certified in a couple of states, Arizona, Pennsylvania, others, is has have people taken sides relative to the arguments about the validity of election 2020? So it's interesting. This, uh, how would I put it? This this argument doesn't really affect 2020 anymore because one thing, and this is where I think President Trump's arguments failed. Uh, you might remember that uh, President Trump was saying to Vice President Pence, "Let the stall or hold off on counting the votes. Let the state legislatures look into it." But the problem with his argument there is that not a single state legislature actually questioned the electoral vote. If they had, maybe that's this issue, uh, more versus Harper today, would be more relevant. If, say, the Pennsylvania legislature had said, we think that the vote on election day 2020 was flawed or problematic or something was wrong with it, we're going to take back our power to cast the electoral votes, and we're going to cast them for Trump because the Pennsylvania legislature at that time was a majority Republican. But that didn't happen not anymore. So because no single state legislature did it, it's not at stake. But this could be very important on the issue of reapportionment. I think the general 
summary about the impact of reapportionment on on this election was that the suspected big advantage that Republicans were hoping to achieve didn't materialize. There were a bunch of states that were redistricted in a way that benefited uh, Democrats in Illinois and elsewhere, for instance. Uh, do you think that's that's accurate? The, the reapportionment ended up not being a big factor in determining the control of Congress this time, did it? I mean, the counts I've seen have suggested that it was a wash in the end, that it didn't help yeah. Republicans uh, at all. In fact, in the short term, uh, suppose the Supreme Court were to say, Constitution says state legislature, it means state legislature. It might in the short term help Democrats because one of the, one of the some of the accounts say that the reason why Republicans got even the small majority they did is because of New York courts throughout the New York state legislature's effort to really gerrymander that state's congressional districts. If the court votes here with the North Carolina legislature and says they're allowed to draw the apportionment maps, no one else can interfere, that would have had the effect actually of allowing New York state to go for it with its really unbalanced uh, pro-democratic gerrymander. It might have led to the Republicans not even winning the House this cycle. Well, uh, last question, and very quickly, uh, do you think that uh, the uh, guilty verdict yesterday on 17 counts involving uh, companies that bear the name uh, Donald Trump, even though Trump himself was personally not convicted, do you believe that this is going to have some kind of a big impact on, first of all, the viability of Trump's business enterprises, and second, the viability of his presidential race? Uh, I think it does. Uh, there's a lot of momentum now in the legal system running against President Trump on lots of different fronts. Um, the DA in Manhattan apparently is continuing an, on, uh, an investigation into President Trump. The New York Attorney General has sued the Trump Organization and President Trump for fraud civilly. And then, of course, you have the special counsel that has been appointed by Merrick Garland, who's looking into the Mar-a-Lago documents issue and January 6th. So you could see this as a tipping point where Trump has successfully used the legal system to defend himself. It sounds like the tide is turning against him now. It might have the effect of one piling on another, and he's going to be on the defensive for the next two years for sure. That's not going to be healthy for a presidential campaign for anybody, not just Donald Trump. No, there's never been a precedent of a successful candidacy with these kinds of uh, undermining bases. Last question very quickly. Uh, yesterday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments concerning the designer of websites who didn't feel that she must be compelled by uh, supposed civil rights laws in the state of Colorado to do a website promoting a gay wedding. The general point of view is this is likely to be a win for religious liberty rather than for gay rights protection. What do you think? I agree with you. This is the third time essentially that this case, this issue has been up to the court. And I think uh, the last time the court sidestepped it, but that was before the Trump justices were appointed. I can't believe that these three Trump justices, who have been very favorable to religious freedom claims in the last few years, would find against a woman who just doesn't want to be compelled to work for, to express messages that she disagrees with as a matter of her religious faith. 
Well, this is a very fundamental American right, not only to say what you want to say, but not to be forced to say things and use your powers of expression to say things that you don't want to say. Uh, John Yu, it is always a pleasure speaking to you and so much clarification and information in a short period of time. Coming up on Pearl Harbor Day, a question, serious question. Why is America like this? Like what? We'll get to that coming right up on The Medved Show. Entertainment Minute. Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan co-star as two intrepid New York Times reporters who are determined to expose the horrific sex abuse by movie mogul Harvey Weinstein. In the riveting true story, she said, now playing in theaters everywhere. We're from the New York Times. I believe you used to work for Harvey Weinstein. People have tried to write this story before. The only way these women are going to go on the record is if they all jump together. And this jumps together like other classic films about investigative journalism, like all the president's men in Spotlight. But she said emphasizes the higher stakes involving, according to the film and the book that it's based on, the plight of all women in the workplace who are so often mistreated. The direction by German filmmaker Maria Schroeder is consistently stunning and gives you an intimate glimpse of its two indefatigable reporters in their heroic quest. It's rated R for graphic descriptions but never depictions of Weinstein's appalling behavior. Three stars for the impressive and important, she said. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, broadcasting for uh, one more day here from uh, Maui in uh, the state of Hawaii, now our 50th state. Hawaii, of course, was not a state in uh, this day, December 7th of 1941. It was an American territory, and it was a site of uh, perhaps our most important naval base at the time, along with Norfolk, but uh, Pearl Harbor. And uh, this is the way that a uh, newsreel at the time highlighted what happened on this Pearl Harbor Day, 1941. Listen. On December 7, 1941, Japan, like its infamous Axis partners, struck first and declared war afterwards. Costly to our Navy was the loss of war vessels, airplanes and equipment. But more costly to Japan was the effectiveness of its foul attack in immediately unifying America in its determination to fight and win the war thrust upon it and to win the peace that will follow. And you'll note that the newsreel came on at a time that the peace had yet to be achieved. Uh, President Roosevelt, of course, gave a remarkable uh, address, uh, basically declaring uh, war on Japan. One of the things that's fascinating to contemplate is that he very pointedly did not declare war on Germany because Germany wasn't involved in Pearl Harbor. And there was actually some hope on the part of FDR's advisors that Germany would not declare war on the United States. But because of an agreement with Japan, uh, Hitler uh, gave a uh, and Hitler, again, who has a bad reputation, according to Ye, because of the Jews, Hitler uh, decided to uh, attack uh, America and basically 
claiming all sorts of personal reasons for that against FDR, including that he was a Freemason. But this was the uh, famous day of infamy speech by the President of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Listen. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. And uh, three days later, Hitler gave his declaration of war speech. Uh, part of what is so remarkable about this, and, and again, it, it was repeated to some extent after 11th, uh, to 2001 was the ability of the nation to come together uh, very dramatically and that is an ability that is questioned right now in a very moving column by Leonard Pitts he did one of the finest columns I remember talking about it on the air many times after September 11th but he now has a new piece under the heading why is America like this and he starts out by describing a series of what he calls knucklehead shootings i.e. small-scale shootings where the motive is patently absurd as with mass shootings there is no shortage and then he gives some descriptions in Atlanta in June a woman who worked at Subway was killed for putting too much mayonnaise on a sandwich in Brooklyn in August, a man who worked at McDonald's was shot in the neck because the French fries were cold. In Houston in September, a woman who worked at Jack in the Box allegedly shot at a customer in an argument over curly fries. In Detroit in November, a man was shot to death after he apparently failed to hold the elevator door. In Tulsa in November, a man reportedly shot at his stepfather after they got into an argument over a game of Monopoly. Absorb enough of these knucklehead shootings and the idea that a search for motive might yield any insight of value begins to feel silly. Little more than intellectual busy work that gives the mind something to do, some illusion of control. And never mind that whatever the motive is, whether it was that the french fries were cold or the shooter hated black people, it will never come close to explaining, much less justifying the carnage. Many will say, writes Pitts, the problem is that guns are too readily available in America, which is demonstrably true. But even that only gets us part of the way to any sensible answer. Other countries, Canada and New Zealand, for instance, also allow citizens to buy guns, albeit with laws more restrictive than you'll find here. Gun ownership in both countries is widespread, yet American-style violence is not. Maybe it's because America fetishizes not just guns, but also the idea that guns, more than a tool of hunting or even of self-defense, are a, a shortcut to capability 
an instant equalizer, allowing even the weak-minded and the lily-liver to stand their ground. Standing your ground as a foundation of the American myth. So it's hard to overstate the allure that that must carry for a certain type of person. For them, to own a gun is to swagger, to know that nobody's going to mess with you or move you off your spot, and that if you want a French fries, then doggone it, you will have hot French fries, uh, because this is America. In the end, that's all the why you're ever going to get and all you'll ever need. Is there something in America, and, and it, it's a different way of saying it, I think, that is most important, is there is a sense of entitlement in this country right now. And that is sometimes promoted by all sides political, politically. But the idea that I am entitled to this, I'm entitled to my hot French fries, uh, I, I'm entitled to have the door held open in an elevator, the idea that Americans feel so, so deeply entitled and in some extreme cases want to defend that sense of entitlement, uh, at, even at the cost of violence. The one thing here is that it, uh, there is a political aspect to this. And the fact that the Democratic Party, to such a tremendous extent, has been the party not only of defending entitlements that are well established like social security and medicare and the food stamps and you you name it but the whole idea of entitlement uh again ask not what your country can do for you ask what you can do for your country and on this pearl harbor day one thing we can do for our country is talk about those things that do unite us which i think are more powerful and uh, ultimately will be more historically fateful than any other aspect of divisions, including knucklehead shootings in this greatest nation on God's green earth.